Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready for some hot, steamy conversation? <laughs> I don't know about how steamy it is, but hot, yeah. <laughs> My mother and I had a fantastic relationship. This is Stephen, and I just wanted to share. Uh, yeah, I want to expound on that just quickly. Because the real man... Good morning and welcome to Coffee Talk. I'm Soy, host of the fastest growing online talk show where we discuss real topics with real people in real situations. Good morning, good morning, good morning and welcome to Coffee Talk with Soy, your new morning show where real talk happens every, every, every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Right here is the place to be. We have some hot and steamy conversation coming up for you very shortly. But before we get into our topic of discussion today, which is Crucial Conversations, I want to remind you to download our app. We need your support. So visit your app store and download the app, Coffee Talk with Soy, and never miss another conversation. This morning we have a very hot topic for you, so I hope you grab your cup in hand Whatever that drink of choice is for you, I'm sipping on some hot tea today, and I'm excited about the conversation we're going to have this morning. We're talking about crucial conversations, and let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Dennis E. Woodridge, DTM, is the CEO of Novel Quest Productions, a leadership training and coaching company he founded in 2010. He chaired the American Cancer Society's Relay for Life, and served as entertainment chair and construction co-chair for the Imagination Playground, a handicap-accessible play area for children in Deltona, Florida. He has been a dedicated Toastmaster since 2006, in which he's held a number of distinguished leadership positions within the organization and has attained the DTM designation which means Distinguished Toastmaster, and it's the highest level of achievement reached. As a member of the Toastmasters International Board of Directors, Dennis is a working ambassador for the organization. He's serving on the board. He develops and supports the policies and procedures that guide Toastmasters International in fulfilling its mission. Let's welcome to the show Dennis E. Woolridge. Good morning, Dennis. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I want to thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate you you being available, and I hope that you are enjoying your stay here in Atlanta. I I always enjoy coming to Atlanta, but I'm especially delighted by the weather. Being from Florida, we always have such hot weather, and this nice, cool weather you have here is so refreshing. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So, Dennis, tell me, how long have you been involved in the leadership, the international leadership aspects of Toastmasters organization? I was actually elected as an international director about two months ago in Kuala Lumpur. So I'm a fairly uh, new international director, but I've been in leadership in Toastmasters and, and elsewhere for quite some time. I actually belong to District 84 in northern and central Florida, then I served there as lieutenant governor uh, two years and then as district governor 
in 2012-2013. Uh, so was that your first time in Kuala Lumpur? Uh, yes, it was. In fact, it was my first time in Asia. Uh, I spent four years in the Navy, but I never got to that side of the world. I spent most of my time in the Mediterranean and in the Atlantic. I bet that was an amazing experience being there. It it absolutely was. The most interesting parts of it, I think, for the people who went, especially from North America, was just the ability to be immersed in another culture that is uh, quite different than what we're used to here in the United States and Canada, but also was a very metropolitan area. So uh, I think that, that strangely surprised a lot of people when they got there that it was as metropolitan as it is and cosmopolitan as it is, but they, uh, it's a lovely city, uh, lovely country. The Malaysians are some of the most welcoming and friendly people uh, that I've had the privilege of getting to know, and it, it absolutely, I don't think anyone walked away from that convention not having been affected by just the idea of what a enormous and global organization we have and how wonderful the people are no matter where they come from. I, I bet you took away quite a bit with you when you left. Would you care to share uh, one thing that you took away from that experience? Well, my position at the convention was a little different than most of the people who went in that I was actually involved in campaigning for the office that I currently hold. So I, I didn't spend a lot of time outside of the convention center. Uh, some, I, I was able to take advantage of getting out a few times during the week. But what I found in in what I was doing at the convention was interviewing with the district leaders from around the world, and it really fascinated me as to the challenges that are faced in certain parts of the world for Toastmasters and, and our district leadership, but how absolutely similar we all are. Uh, I've done a lot of traveling globally, especially in Europe and in certain parts of uh, Africa, but... Uh, and the Caribbean, but the um, the thing that really struck me in, in being able to meet so many people, especially from Asia, because obviously being, being there, there were a lot of Asians there. Uh, it just reinforced that idea that no matter where we live, no matter you know who we are, there are a lot more similarities than there are differences between people, and there is always room, even when you may not agree, as we so often see around the world in conflicts that there's always room to find common ground and to be able to work together. And I think Postmasters is the perfect example of that in, in play because we do have 313,000 members, over 313,000 members in over 216 countries. And when you see that group of people get together, it's, it's like watching, almost like watching a family. So it was very inspiring for me. To, to learn about challenges that are different than the challenges that we face here in North America, but also to to understand that no matter where you're from, uh, Toastmasters are Toastmasters. Oh, wow. And being that Toastmasters are Toastmasters, I understand that you're here to bring a message to District 44 during the fall conference this weekend. That's correct. I'm actually doing a couple of things for the group here that's meeting at the uh, conference. Uh, one thing is an educational session on Saturday uh, based on the book Crucial Conversations, and then Saturday night I'll be delivering uh, a keynote address 
that is a little bit different than I th- what I think people are used to for keynote addresses at conferences, but I think will be a lot of fun for people. We're going to examine uh, the lyrics of the song Brave by uh, Sarah Bareilles and how that relates to uh, being a Toastmaster and reaching out with the Toastmaster message. So I think we're going to have a lot of fun Saturday night. And I'm also looking forward to the educational sessions uh, on Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. So let's talk about crucial conversations. What what does that mean, actually? Well, the session that I'm teaching is from a book called, based on a book uh, called Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When the Stakes Are High. The, it was multiple authors, Patterson, Granny McMillan, and Switzler. And the session that I'm presenting is not an official uh, training session uh, you know, from this group. But the, the book is about how do you handle communications and conversations when certain elements can be disruptive, such as the, uh, there are differing opinions on the particular subject, uh, the stakes are high, and when emotions, especially when emotions can run high because people are uh, invested in a particular uh, mode of thinking or a particular idea, it's just how do you approach those kind of subject matters and be able to handle those and come to a, a conclusion that is positive for everyone involved without going down um, you know, a path of, of either um, being controversial or confrontational and, or just simply being silent, which is oftentimes the reaction we get from people that we have to have these crucial conversations with. You know, I I thought that topic was so relevant when I read it. I thought, oh, I've got to get him on the show. We've got to talk about that because I saw how people are in need of that kind of information given where we are now with the voting that, that's going to be taking place in the next week mm-hmm. or so here and in the Georgia area, and people are often discussing those kinds of things, those kinds of practices, so that that would be great in terms of just being in a situation where that would be a crucial conversation to talk about politics. And then we have people who are looking for employment and how people can't find it. It's affecting households. You're in an employment situation where you have to discuss that with your with your employer. And, and some of the cutoffs have, have, have been not to the lack of performance, but just in the budget and cutting back. So that that's a crucial conversation that a person would, would have too. And then how that affects your household and how that could be disruptive to your household with, with the lack of that income. So I just saw that being just across the board, good information that people can apply to their lives outside of being Toastmasters. Well, it's true. I think it's universal. And those examples you bring up are perfect examples of course, there's a plethora of other things that can be considered a crucial conversation. But those three in particular are, are uh, can be very um, disruptive. They can be very destructive if they're not handled correctly. And one of the things I like about the, the principles that are in this book, Crucial Conversations, is the idea that we, as part of the conversation, and as the people who are going into what we know is going to be one of those emotionally charged or opinionated kind of conversations and understanding the principles behind this, this what are in the book, uh, it, it, we have to take responsibility for those conversations. 
Uh, we have to be the ones that are not only aware of of the things that are happening within us because we can be very opinionated as well and we can have you know high stakes in a conversation as well just like what you're talking about you know your your employment or or your your uh, relationship with a loved one um we need to be able to to monitor ourselves to see when we're basically going down the rabbit hole if you know what i mean and we also need to be aware of of the the other person in this conversation the, the basic thing we need to keep in mind is that if we're going to have intelligent, um, interactive dialogue, everyone in the dialogue has to feel safe. And it really is dependent on us to be aware of when safety starts to go. Um, I love the example they give in the book, and I, I talk about this. I'll be talking about this quite a bit tomorrow during my session. But, you know, we are wired not to have productive dialogue. And, and we've been wired this way since prehistoric times. You know, when when people used to leave the safety of their cave to go out and find something to eat, and and suddenly a saber-toothed tiger tank came around the you know the corner, um, there were two reactions that that our ancestors would have to that event, and that would be to either fight or to flee. And we still have that's hardwired in us. And although we, we're not having to deal with saber-toothed tigers, sometimes we're having to deal with saber-toothed conversations. And we have a tendency to either fight, which in conversation becomes be, being aggressive, name-calling, being angry, or the flee, which is to simply shut down and just you know not talk about it and, and walk away from the conversation. Neither one of those reactions is positive, and we won't gain anything out of those reactions. So what we have to train ourselves to do is to be very aware of what's happening inside of us emotionally and reactively. And also to learn to look for signs from the other person that the dialogue that we're having is becoming unsafe, that they're feeling unsafe or we're feeling unsafe. And and so that we can keep that that dialogue going because we're only going to accomplish something by, by talking to each other honestly, uh, staying on the points, making sure that we are uh, detached in, in some way from the emotions that can be there. Only through monitoring both ourselves and the other person can we really maintain that that safe conversation and dialogue. Oh, my God. I've I've learned so much in the past two minutes that, oh, my goodness. When you say keep the conversation safe, what would you suggest, according to the book, according to what you read, and according to what you're going to deliver in this session, what would be the advice that you would give in terms of keeping the conversation where both parties feel safe? What do you do when you are getting ready to visit that area where one feels unsafe? How do you bring it back in? Well, probably the most productive way to do this, if you, if you, can, if you have the time and you're able to do this, is when it becomes clear that the conversation is becoming unsafe. Uh, one of the things they talk about in the book is a, a pool of mutual belief. And basically what they mean by that is that as we're entering into this conversation, as long as everybody in the conversation feels safe, they're willing to deposit their beliefs, their feelings, their attitudes, their opinions about the subject matter you're talking about freely and honestly. And when it becomes unsafe, that's when the, we, we stop sharing that information and we, tri- we start either shutting down or we start ramping up 
uh, with either the flag or the fleet. One of the best ways to handle that when you realize that's happening, and especially for people who are not um, haven't been practicing this kind of, of conversation and dialogue for a long time, is simply to disconnect from the conversation at that moment by saying, "Well, you know, I, I get the feeling that we're, we're starting to." Uh, be unproductive in this conversation. It looks like, you know, emotions are starting to run high. So I suggest we, you know, we, we break away from this for a little while and we'll come back to it later. Let them settle down and we'll come back to it later. And and the, the really important part of that is when you disconnect and you kind of walk away from the conversation is, is that's when real self-examination takes place. And it doesn't matter if the person you're, that you're in the conversation with is the one that has started to get heated, become emotional, or whether they're beginning to shut down, when you sense that's happening and you, you were able to disconnect the conversation at that point and step away, self-examination is not only about uh, what what was I doing in the conversation that be, could be causing this, this feeling of a lack of safety, but you really, and this is kind of the tough part for us, is to examine what is it that I have done or said that could be generating that reaction in the person I'm talking to? And that's what I meant earlier about we have to take responsibility for the conversations that we get in. Once you've examined that and you figured it out, if you can, if you can find if there was something that you did that make it unsafe, then you know the next time you engage, you don't want to practice that. You want to avoid that particular behavior or way of talking or whatever that you're doing that's causing that unsafe attitude. And if something you did cause that reaction or something you said caused that reaction in the other person, it, it's basically a, a matter of apologizing. One of the things I love about this, this program that's in this book is their explanation of an apology. And that is an apology is not an apology unless there's a change of heart. And if you realize that you've done something that has offended or has upset the other person, you need to be very honest in your apology, and you need to be genuinely focused on what it is that you think you did, and, and then apologize and mean that apology, and don't go back into those areas again so that you have this change of heart. Secondarily, one of the things that they suggest is what they call contrasting, mm-hmm. and it, to say to that person, uh, because a lot of times when we get into these conversations and emotions are running high, the 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 person we're having the conversation with believes they begin to invent stories about what's generating our side of the conversation. And this is very natural. I'll do it. So mm-hmm. it's trying to determine what it is that they think we think and then let them know that that's, that's not what we're talking about. And I'll give you an example. If you know, you're talking to a coworker and or someone, let's make it a little more uh, specific. It, it, you, someone who works for you, uh, they're, they're constantly late getting to the office. Mm-hmm. And you want to have a conversation with them about them being late. And in that conversation you generate, they suddenly get the feeling and the opinion, and they begin to shut down because they think that you're, you're, you're upset with their entire performance. Mm-hmm. So it's, if that's not true, then a contrast that you could use would be to say, you know, listen, I, I really appreciate you working here. I enjoy working with you. I think you do a great job. You know, you've got real responsibilities and you take care of those well. The only thing I'm concerned about is the fact that you're coming in a little late. So you're reassuring the person that you, in fact, 
have one specific thing that you need to talk to them about. It doesn't reflect over their entire performance. People have a tendency to, when they begin to be emotional, when they start having the fight-or-flight syndrome that we talked about earlier, uh, a very, very natural reaction that people have is to start inventing stories about why things are happening. And those stories tend to fall in two categories, either um, a victim story, which you're saying, Mm -hmm. I I didn't have anything to do with this. This was all their fault. Or the the idea that just simply a blame story, you know, this is your fault. You're the one that did this. And Mm -hmm. most of the time, none of those are right, because what we do is we go on what our perceptions are instead of what the facts are. And one of those things, as I said a while ago, when you break away from a conversation, one of the things you want to think about is what are the facts that you know that we know about what we're discussing? And this is true for anything you're discussing. And separate the facts, what you know, from what you perceive and what you're inventing stories about as well. Because, again, it's a very natural thing to do. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, a wife finds a receipt for a cheap hotel just down the street from her house in her husband's um, suit. And immediately she begins to think he's having an affair because why else would he have a receipt for a cheap hotel that's only three or four blocks from the house? Um, And so when he walks in that evening, she immediately confronts him that he's having an affair and she wants a divorce. Now that's the kind of conversation you don't want to have, at least to start off with. I mean, it, it, could be tr- it could be true, and in that case, we may have to go down that, that, that aisle. A better way to handle that is for the wife to really take a look at what the facts are. The fact is she just has found a receipt. There's no explanation of the receipt. There's no explanation of, of, of why that exists the way that it does. So when her husband comes home that evening, and he says, how was your day? And she says, well, not so good. And he said, what happened? And she said, well, I... I I found this receipt as I was getting ready to send your, you know, your suits to the dry cleaner. And it's for a motel just down the street. And it, as I said, it could be exactly what she's thinking, but it could also be that maybe the Chinese restaurant next door that they went to on that night, um, he owns the hotel too, and it wound up he ran it through the wrong machine. So the receipt has the imprint of the hotel rather than the Chinese restaurant. Uh, I mean, that's a a believable uh, example of how, you know, you, we can take facts and, and instead of just dealing with what exists, we begin to create stories outside of that. And it's a very natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now, Dennis, is, is that a true story? <laughs> no, but it's not my original story. That's actually an example <laughs> A very, a very uh, Reader's Digest version of an example that's actually in the book that I thought was very, very good. Because, it, because it's very realistic. I mean, that could happen. and probably does happen quite often. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you mentioned something that I kind of want to go back and, and examine a little bit where you talked about perception versus facts. Well, that person who is the wife, in this case, who jumped to conclusions, and, and sometimes we often do that, you mentioned how pulling away from the conversation or shutting down sometimes allow us to go into a, a mode where we're evaluating ourselves. Do you think that it takes quite a level of emotional maturity to be able to rationale perception versus fact? 
I, that's a way that you could describe it. I think another way that you could describe that that skill is 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 having a skill. As I mentioned earlier, none of us are hardwired for this kind of of examination and this kind of conversation of keeping it safe and making sure that we're dealing only with the facts. Our reaction is to go one way or the other, to you know, to run away or to to immediately get into a confrontation about it. And we're just hardwired that way. Just because we're hardwired that way doesn't mean that's the way we have to react. But what it does mean is these are learned skills. And no one, I, I would predict that no one can read this book or, or go to a, a session on this, on this theory and immediately walk out practicing what they've heard. Because each one of us, to one degree or another, has to kind of rewire our brains. And we only do that by, first of all, learning about it, and then second of all, practicing it. And the idea that you're suddenly, you know, you're supposed to be perfect at this is, is, is kind of ridiculous because it is something that you have to do, you know, over and over again until you have rewired your brain. So I, I think it's a matter of just being aware that we do have this natural tendency. Uh, maybe the first step is is to really take a look at the conversations that you're having and then examining those to see were those, you know, those kind of conversations that could be positively affected by this kind of, of behavior that we're talking about. So um, it, it's not automatic. Um, it does take, I think, maybe rather than emotional maturity, it just takes the ability to recognize the reality of, of, of what's going on around us and understand that we do in fact, have those tendencies and that we can overcome them, and then taking the time and the effort to actually make it work in our lives. It's like anything else that's worthwhile for us to do. I, I've always felt like that anything that is worthwhile takes effort. If it doesn't take effort, it's probably not worthwhile. Um, taking the, the easy road, when we have an easy and a hard road that we can choose between, um, the hard road may be filled with boulders and stones and all kinds of obstacles, but the goal is much more worthwhile than than the street that has no obstacles and that you can get to the goal easily. Uh, usually that goal is not worth really the, the journey you've made. It, that's my understanding and, and, and my experience as well. So I think it's just a matter of having people be aware that there is a way to have better conversations, more productive conversations, to be able to get into situations that we think of as, as being sticky situations that sometimes we avoid because we know it's going to be confrontational or we know we're going to upset the other person and they may shut down us. Knowing that there's a way that we can engage in those kind of conversations and then be productive for both parties. Because another thing that's very important, as is pointed out in this book, is that you constantly have to keep in mind what is it that I really want out of this conversation? And, and this is probably the first question when we do that breaking away, is, is what, what really is it that I want out of it? And then the second question is, what is it that I want for the other party? Because this is an equal uh, back and forth between two people. We have to be aware of, of what the positive outcomes can be for the partner in this dialogue as well. Wow, that's amazing. If you are just tuning in with us, I'm speaking with Dennis Woolridge, and he was talking about um, information that he's sharing based on the book, Crucial Conversation. We talked about theories within the book. We just finished 
discussing how we, to keep the conversation safe. Dennis, where can one get more information about this book for those who will not be able to witness your, your seminar this weekend? There's actually, if you just simply Google crucial conversations, there's a lot of information on the Internet. I, I would say to kind of be careful, a lot of it is um, PowerPoint presentations that have been put up by one organization or another that really just looking at, at slides from a PowerPoint, you're not going to be able to understand the theories behind what they're talking about, and sometimes it won't make any sense unless you have the background anyway. Uh, my uh, advice to everybody out there is order a copy of the book. Um, it's available um, from any bookseller. Uh, Amazon has it, I know. Uh, it's also available for Kindle and the other digital readers. So it's very widely uh widely distributed and easy to get a hold of, and I think it's a worthwhile book for anyone to read. I actually had a very good friend of mine who was who was a consultant who advised me to read the book. She had just finished it, and she thought it was absolutely wonderful, and I went out and bought a copy, and I agree. I think it is. Um, it's one of the, the best training tools I've ever run across for having, you know, productive interactions with people, and you know, that's becoming more and more important in our world. As we were talking about when we first started talking, you know, we, we, we live in a global society now. And there are so many differences in our cultures, in religions, in politics. There's so many things that can divide us if we allow them to. But we need every tool that we can have in our toolbox to allow us to be able to be productive in our interactions with the people that we meet from next door, from down the street, or across the world. And I think that the ideas that are presented in this book are, are very usable. They're not difficult to understand, nor are they difficult to put into practice. Well, Dennis, I thank you for being on the show. <clears throat> I wish you the best of luck uh, in your presentations this weekend, I'm sure. Uh, I'm absolutely positive that people who are there to hear this information are going to walk away with uh, quite a bit to uh, to make changes in their own personal lives as it relates to how they converse, conversate with other people. Uh, I've learned so much. I, I am just excited about what you shared, and I, I look. I personally have been taking notes myself. <laughs> to uh, examine, and I'm going to walk away from this going and do a self-examination of myself and how I communicate with, with others as well. So I appreciate you being on the show, and I thank you so much for your participation. Well, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure being here, and I hope that uh, the information has helped somebody and that they can start doing better with their crucial conversations. You've heard it from the man himself, Dennis E. Woolridge, DTM, sharing those golden nuggets on Crucial Conversation. Thanks a lot, Dennis, for being on the show. We truly appreciate you and love that information. I hope you have inspired someone. I just love this show. Coffee Talk with Soy, that is your new morning show. Where Real Talk happens every Saturday at 10 a.m. I'd like to thank the listeners and the guests for joining me in the cafe today. What a wonderful time we had, yes indeed. Don't forget to download the app Coffee Talk with Soy from your app store. It's now available by iTunes or Google Play. Stay connected, stay connected by visiting the website 
www.coffeetalkwithsoy.com as well as looking for us on your social media sites. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the name Coffee Talk with Soy. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Bye-bye.